Welcome to the ALC Pan-African Radio's public debate program. This program engages experts and an invited audience to discussions around cross-cutting issues on peace, security and leadership in Africa. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Ah, yes. I like a bit of, bit of feedback. Hello, everyone. For those who don't know me, my name is Fumi Olonishaki. I'm Vice President and Vice Principal International here at King's. Um, welcome to this event, uh, the book launch. And I shall introduce uh, our guest in a couple of minutes. But before that, let me call on Professor John Gerson to welcome you as Vice Dean International to the Faculty of Social Science and Public Policy. It's nice to see a number of new faces, I, and I want to welcome our international guests as well. Thank you. Okay, thanks. Um, so uh, just to add to Fumi's welcome, uh, for those of you who don't, uh, are not associated with our, with, with our faculty here, uh, Social Science and Public Policy, uh, it's probably one of the biggest groupings of uh, academics working in, in the area of, uh, of public policy uh, focused research, uh, but particularly in the area of security studies where you are at the moment, uh, Department of War Studies, um, but also with colleagues from uh, political economy. We, we look at these areas, uh, colleagues such as uh, Shirad Maha, who, who will be speaking later in the uh, International Center for Radicalization, but also our various programs on terrorism, intelligence, and national security bring together people from a lot of disciplines. <coughs> so uh, a subject and a, and a topic like ISIS is uh, about as cross-cutting as it gets in, policy, in, in the policy realm, uh, and it's a very important area for um, work within the faculty. Uh, we're delighted to have you here today. I, I would say hello on behalf of Mike Rainsborough, uh, the head of the Department of War Studies. I'm very much looking forward to uh, the discussion that we can generate uh, um, today. Thanks very much, Brian. Thank you. Thank you, John. I, I think let me speak for a couple of minutes uh, to give us a sense of how we're going to run uh, this event this afternoon. Um, we have in the room our guest, uh, Professor Mahmoud Mohamedou, and I will introduce him in a minute. He will present the book to you. And I see people have been buying copies of, uh, of the book already. Uh, thank you uh, for honoring our, our invitation. In about 20 minutes, he'll present the book. And it's my pleasure uh, not just to welcome him, but uh, also I want to acknowledge my colleague, uh, Dr. Shiraz Meher, who those of you who are familiar with us at King's College London will be well aware of the work of the International Center for the Study of Radicalization where as deputy director he's done great research. You might have seen him in the media as well. And I think uh, he's best placed than most uh, to comment on, uh, on this special book. Without further ado, let me speak a little bit about the author. Uh, professor Mohamedou is professor of international history and chair of, interna of the international history department at the Graduate Institute of International and Development Studies in Geneva. Previously, uh, he was Associate Director of the Program on Humanitarian Policy and Conflict Research at Harvard University, 
He also teaches at the doctoral school at Sciences Po in Paris. Uh, he's the author of Iraq and the Second Gold Gulf War. Uh, so you'd notice that there are several books that preceded this. Iraq and the Second Gulf War, State Building and Regime Security, which was published uh, in, in 2002. Uh, Understanding Al-Qaeda, Changing War and Global Politics, published in uh, 2011, in 2011. And he's co-editor of Democratization in the 21st Century, 2016. What I should also say about him is he's one of those special categories of scholars. There are not many who seamlessly crisscrosses the world of academia uh, policy and practice. And you will see that in his record. What I haven't said in his short bio, which we also sent to you, is that he was uh, deputy director of the Geneva Center for Security Policy. We met uh, a while back in my own uh, sojourn at the United Nations in various fora. Uh, we've sat in uh, places like Bellagio together, deliberating what the world might look like uh, over the next uh, couple of, of decades. Uh, he's very modest. His work as an astute scholar and the work that he has done uh, as an astute diplomat as well goes before him. But, but I know some of our fellows in the room have uh, read your work. They've come across your work. But to, to host this book launch means something special to us at the African Leadership Center uh, because it's hosting a scholar who thinks outside the box. It's also hosting someone who crisscrosses the world of diplomacy in particular ways with an alternative kind of discourse around uh, peace and security across different regions. Uh, and I think it, uh, I need to highlight that it's a special pleasure to have you here, uh, Mahmoud, and I look forward to listening to you. We shall listen to you for present the book for about 20 minutes stops, and we'll listen to Dr. Meha give us some comments. Thereafter, I'll open it to the floor. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much, Fumini. Thank you for your very kind welcome. Um, Professor Gerson, Vice Dean, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, my thanks as well to uh, Dr. Maher for being with us. Um, to all of you for taking the time. I also want to recognize my good friend, um, David Schulman from Pluto Press, who's here. More than an editor, he's a friend. He's been a, a member of this adventure for quite a while, so it's a pleasure to see you here, uh, David. Uh, of course, a special thank to Fumni, uh, my sister, uh, my crime, partner in crime, rather. <laughs> uh, we've done this for a while now, and it's a real pleasure for me to be able to, to be here and share these discussions with you. Um, there's a lot to cover, and I'd like very much to have a discussion with you, um, and I would like to get going immediately to give you a bit of a sense of what it is that I'm doing here, which is asking a question of what is ISIS, and I have a few slides to start with. Um, this book starts against the background of a, an exercise of about some 20 years uh, in which I have started examining early on in a discussion on 9-11, followed by the work on Al-Qaeda. The 9-11 operation took me to the, the group that conducted it. From there on, I went into the larger set of issues which I'll present today. Um, earlier, I had uh, delved into the question of the Levant with the Iraq book. Um, and in the next phase, hopefully in the next two, three years, I'd like to go back in a sort of a prequel to this um, 
hopefully, ultimately a tetralogy, in which I look at uh, the group known as the Ikhwan, which about a century ago, not the Ikhwan Muslimin in Egypt, not to be confused with those, but rather the irregulars that about a century ago in Arabia were very much uh, precursors of the dynamics that I'm uh, looking at. And I find a lot of commonalities, and I'm starting to look into a bit of a history of that. So um, the whole discussion, of course, is, as you can see here, um, about this, uh, if you go back slightly, if you don't mind, um, the elements there that is about this discussion of an examination of this type of violence. This book interrogates critically the dominant representation of the organization of the Islamic State and lays out an alternative argument about its deeper history, complex identity, and multifaceted nature. A central concern that I'm putting forth here is also about the nature of the discussion on terrorism itself, writ large, the place ISIS <coughs> occupies in the debate and before it Al-Qaeda, and the significance of these constructions for the larger international order, which is really what I'm interested in. It argues that social sciences have been captive to a self-imposed normative impasse on the issue of radical Islamism, generally, and Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State specifically, and have so far failed to initiate a historically contextualized, global, not merely Western or Westernized, and nuanced discussion on the phenomena at hand. Such a persistent lack of a deeper analysis is consequential as a ritual of commentary on the international situation ushered by the two groups has solidified. In spite of being unconvincing to many, anchored in the matrix developed following 9-11, this catastrophizing sequence is at the heart of both the conceptual misunderstanding and the policy dead-end, leading to the replay of the violence for the past few years. Starting in the autumn of 2014, you will recall the emergence of ISIS led to the publication of a number of works on the group telling us its story and to its inside story and isolation of those histories and context. As the self-standing problem of ISIS took shape, thus underwritten by the military academic terrorism expert, the discussion, just as it has been the case a decade earlier with Al-Qaeda, remained about all the time mapping the defeat of a repellent enemy or entity bent on annihilation. What matters more though, however, to the academic analysis seeking to conceptualize the Islamic State is that such a practice has resulted in an unnuanced under-theorization of one of the most important developments of our time and which, as a result, remained captive to a simplified narrative about apocalyptic terrorism and theological readings. Three trends dominated the discourse on ISIS. Impatient journalistic accounts, which is just what it is, the media do their work differently. One-dimensional short-term security expertise, which is a different brand of work as it is. And ethereal Islamism studies. To varying de degrees, these three approaches share the following. The evidence used for the analysis is flimsy, taken unquestionably from often unverified statements, including from the groups themselves. Documents found, quote-unquote, are accepted at face value. Emotionalism, more importantly, is worn on the sleeve by the analyst who is expected to be detached. Sensationalism is the mode of communication, and analysis knows only two directions, those of rise or fall, victory or defeat, new or old. Manichaean readings all the time. Who's up and who's down scorekeeping accounts of vices, however, are not enough or sufficient enough to make sense of the incubating, dysrhythmic, transformation of terrorism taking place at the hands of this group. 
But there's more and more problematic, and that is the cultural reading that has been dominant. In time, the problem emerged thus, to simplify it. To understand Western terrorists of the 1970s, such as the German Bader Meinhof or the Italian Red Brigades, one is invited, the student is invited to examine the societal conditions of post-war Germany and Italy, the ambient malaise in these countries 25 years after Nazism and fascism, and their relationship with their rebellious youth, and indeed to find valid keys to that dynamic. To make sense of Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State, the student is invited to read the Quran. The next slide, please. In effect, media vigilantism, terrorism expert pronouncements, and condescending interrogations of Islam and its long-awaited aggiornamento have joined hands to produce a non-history of one of the dominant form of contemporary non-state violence. This approach also ends up presenting the Islamic states in terms of a homogeneity impacted by a single ideology when again there is no evidence to that effect. Indeed, it is arguably quite the opposite with ISIS fielding a system of continuities and ruptures under a dominant trait of hybridity. The reason for that, should we push that a little bit beyond, is that ISIS has historically dwelled continuously in fluidity, emerging from a mutated scene, the emergence of self-empowered Islamism in the early 1980s, Afghanistan, of course, to go into a further transformed one, the global expansion and atomization of the transnational groups in the 2020s, Iraq, Syria, other places, Somalia, Libya, whatnot. The under-theorization of ISIS then, and historically, is the continuation, I submit to you, of the under-conceptualization of Al-Qaeda. And to be certain, of course, terrorism suffered by other regions beyond the West is reported regularly and portrayed equally as a nil of our times to be dealt with urgently. However, the core representation of terrorism per se as the dominant mainstream, well-embroiled media narrative and policy drapery, they are incestuous in that sense, is centrally the menace it represents to the West. An illustration of this only partially coded reality is the inconsistent use of the also problematic term terrorism by the mainstream media, at once resorting to it reflexively when attacks have Muslims associated with them and opting for another terminology, attack, shooting, security incident, assault, situation, collision, when events of a similar nature have different types of perpetrators. Omnipresent, the threat is defined almost only in relation to the presence of Islam in its vicinity and of ISIS ostentatiously. Regularly replayed and patterned in such a depoliticized and culturalized ways, the contemporary presentation of political violence has not evolved significantly beyond the static dimension since 9-11. In inquiring, therefore, as to the genesis, nature, and trajectory of the Islamic State, and attempting, therefore, to conceptualize it beyond this critique, the book argues that the entity which stormed the world stage seismically in the summer of 2014 was a hybrid meta-puzzle and an influential armed group, which beyond its specific regional Middle Eastern history, which matters and is documented in the book, and its radical Islamist nature, which also matters and is a key component, but secondary, as I mentioned, and beyond that, what the group has done, and more interestingly and historically for the scholar, is that it has repurposed the larger meaning of our contemporary violence, birthing a do-it-yourself terrorism wave, a democratized, 
liberalized, McDonaldized, as I use the term in the book, um, only half tongue-in-cheek because it is very much a corporate model that is used by the entity. Al-Qaeda, you see, reconnected the history of terrorism with the anarchists in a bit of a circle historically that is very interesting, kind of a back-to-the-future logic. Both were modernity ushering entities, anarchists of the 1870s, those Dostoevsky writes about, and Al-Qaeda in the early 1990s with the emergence of globalization. But ISIS moves beyond that by pointing out to the limits of what the state. And it does so not by sitting at the periphery of world politics, but by acting precisely at the center of the metropolis. And the threatening nature of ISIS, therefore, seems to me, lies not so much in its violence, classical, understandable, but in the nature of the counter order it is claiming to uphold. Therein lies as well primarily its post-modernity. So the Islamic State, is, it is submitted, is three things. One, it is anchored in an interrelated set of far-reaching and conflict-ridden unresolved histories between the Middle East and the West. Secondly, the entity is the expression of a multi-layered purposive terrorizing force directed at local power struggles, Iraq, Syria, you name it, and societal dystrophies that are ongoing. And three, has evolved rapidly, we have to be modest as we observe this, towards an evanescent, as I was saying, individualized forms of both a physical and a symbolic violence that is unpacked globally. Now, while I want to insist that the Islamic State is a radical Islamist group which takes its religious project seriously, certainly more than Al-Qaeda. I suggest that one, such a mise-en-scene religious self-representation is not sufficient analytically, and that two, writing on ISIS against the background of a deeper history that escapes the extremist Islamism frame, and in the context of a global, open-ended, political, societal development in both the global south and in the west, allows us to answer more fully, not necessarily comprehensively, but more fully, the larger contemporary questions posed by the group. So, what is then ISIS? What should we see in terms of a, a, an attempt at codifying this? One route to remedying those shortcomings is to upgrade the presence of alternative histories on the question of violence. Considering the organization's declarative religious identity as adornamental, secondary to its more consequential societal, social, political na nature, I argue instead that the conceptual geology of the Islamic State holds the key to its understanding and is to be found in three related dimensions. One, a continuation of the earlier radical Islamist group, Al-Qaeda. I cannot insist enough on the historical importance of Al-Qaeda. It's a bit of a fad these days to speak of AQS passé, ISIS has dismissed it, ISIS would not be here without everything that Al-Qaeda introduced as a modus operandi, which is not innovative but revolutionary in that sense. And that entity's deeper upstream regional context. Secondly, ISIS is the product of degenerated political developments in Iraq and in the aftermath of the American invasion of that country in March 2003 and later the events in Syria since 2011. And thirdly, the wider rise of what I observe as an original type of political violence linked both to the unfinished and resurgent practices of the colonial era and the more recent problematic unrestrained interventionism here. And this is when the issue becomes interesting because those are the two questions, the C word, colonialism, and the I world, imperialism, that have been taken out of this discussion, which has been cleaned in that sense, cleansed, I would say, 
in terms of the technicalities that are being introduced around the question of terrorism. The Islamic State functions inherently at multiple levels. To understand it, we have to embrace its hybridity, formed in the womb of Al-Qaeda, as I was saying, a, the AQ franchise, as, as you know, this battle-hardened entity was also made up of the remnants of Saddam Hussein's military strategy. This is literally the remnants of the Republican Guard as documented and as observed. It is also a global phenomenon whereby thousands of individuals, including teenage girls, carrying their Gucci bags and whole families, flocked to the territory the group controlled in the Levant to join this project. They knew very little about fundamentally. The sum total of this construction yields a group that must be understood first and foremost in relation to different levels and to different eras. Next slide, please. And I think it is in that sense that I offer the following seven layers in the book in which you can find for each one of these identities, essentially the Al-Qaeda uh, legacy, the insurgency in Iraq as an Islamist one, the, is, the insurgency in Iraq as a military one, Syria again, the developments within the region that takes you all the way into the Sinai and Sarbet al-Maqdis, other groups and so on. The internationalist dimension of this, we're taking you into influencing Boko Haram to declare that they are a wilaya, a region of that entity. And of course, the latest dimension, which is the rebellious youth in the West that is emerging in that sense. And so in reconstructing this complex and interwoven genealogy of the group, the analysis situates similarly the Islamic State in three different and interrelated contexts. Constitutive, it is argued, of a transformative moment of violence production early in the early 21st century, post-colonialism, post-globalization, and post-modernity. And this is what I'd like us to really take a look at together. That is, not only the lineages that I mentioned, but the temporality. And that, in effect, the spatialities are only half the story. It is the combination the interrelatedness and the interwoven of these three different moments and these three different large sets of entities that gives us the key to understanding the DNA of the hybridity of the group. This transformation reveals a matrix of the new groups around the world increasingly behaving in a mode, now moving to my next final argument, now local, now transnational, all the time repositioning and adapting to dynamics of post-globalization. As such, the work traces the emergence and evolution of the organization and identifies its nature, highlighting and understanding, as I was saying, where periodization and spatialization of the Islamic State warrants further qualitative expansion beyond the available narrative of a mad terrorist group bent on wreaking havoc on the West now immediately and has to be terminated. This is done with a view to argue for a reconceptualization of the production of violence by the Islamic State that is pushing our very understanding in this day and age of what violence, what terrorism means in that sense. And I think we might be, this is what we, we were talking about, thinking um, beyond the box, thinking against the box. We might be at the dawn of a novel form of global, privatized, transnationalized, interweaved, hybrid, insurgent sociopolitical violence. It is submitted here, ladies and gentlemen, that the cultural mixity and multi-layered nature of ISIS inaugurated before our very eyes a revealing moment in both the nature and the direction of contemporary violence while echoing deeper colonial underpinnings. A clockwork orange meets Blade Runner meets Lawrence of Arabia. 
In the second decade of the 21st century, political violence was evolved actively as a result of the cumulative revolutionary, as opposed to evolutionary, ways of Al-Qaeda, as I said, and the Islamic State. Diasporized, deregulated, dispersed in time and space, this process is also quantitatively defined by its choreography and its imagery. This is precisely what I meant to say by making those artistic references, because I do think that to make sense of what's happening, we have to go beyond our classical IR social sciences. We have to bring in the arts, we have to bring in films, we have to bring in movies, we have to bring in the influence of hip hop when it comes to the visual of these groups as they claim, as they present them, and as we see all of these references from the post-modernity of the villains to the orange jumpsuits that you see echoed in the videos from Azarqawi, not just 2014 in Baghdadi, to the sort of the hoodlums of the metropolis and the video gamesy nature of that logic to the type of mise-en-scene, as I said, that uses super slow motion, uh, GoPro, um, IMAX type of visuals that you see, 4K type of uh, essentially videos that we see planning around all of this violence. And that essentially is fundamental in the sense of what we see playing out in the militarization and transnationalization. And in effect, ladies and gentlemen, what you see here is already precisely what ISIS has itself used in its own imagery. These are two images from their own materials. This one was tweeted about two years ago, and this one it was in one of their magazines. On the one hand, you have here the dominant duality of the group, the militarization of the state-building logic. This is literally a report, Pentagon-like. We've done this over the past month, X, Y, Z. This is the battle we conducted. But they're also speaking to this postmodern, elusive kind of logic that I was describing. And that takes me to my final argument, and the one that is more important to me. Please, once expressed only domestically or internationally, the new violence now travels back and forth, at once impacting periphery and metropolis with equal equity and consequential unpredictability, as the full spectrum of the interaction of the space is occupied than merely a single end of it. Return to sender is in effect the motto of the violence counterproduced, remixed, and shipped back by the Islamic State to the imperial center. Such an embryonic, organic repatriation of violence is currently not visible to many in the West, who read terrorism primarily in terms of a culturally, ethnically, religiously informed violence. This is the canon. This is where we are. This is what you hear on the 8th PM news, this is what you hear in most think tank reports, this is what we are, we are teaching in an obsolete fashion to our students. And this takes you into a type of a specific community's type of references. Now, if the backstory of, of ISIS is, as I said, Al-Qaeda, and if its front story is Syria and Iraq, its side story seems to me post-colonialism and post-modernity. And we are therefore possibly again at the dawn of a transcendence of these binaries, center, periphery, colonized, colonizer, dominated, dominator in international affairs when it comes to political violence. The post-modernity of ISIS, ambivalent, ambiguous, impersonal, lies indeed in its self-generated ability to produce and reproduce the razzmatazz of its own grand narrative, which is an artifact, to be sure, that is also the product of micro-narratives about individual stories that you see them playing out. Inspiration is packaged. The spectacle is cinematically Hollywoodian, beamed continu continuously at the individual level of consumption, and delivered in daily doses of video that are consumed by the kids. 
bringing both North and South into an ever closer interface with individual actors on both sides, experiencing related but not similar radical insurgent rebellious urges. The situation in Raqqa is not as the situation in Marseille, but they are related. Finally, and taking on beyond that, as I said, if we take this, please, in the next one, then it seems to me that we have to upgrade our understanding of what terrorism is. And so my invitation is to a form of a pensamiento nuevo, as they would call it in Spanish, new thinking on the notion of terrorism, that is now the notion of terrorism is in a state of conceptual deformation due to the elasticity of the term that could be used and how it has turned ethos, specific people, religion, into pathos. And this ISIS as the bogeyman of international security. The problematique has remained of one of terrorism and counterterrorism, them against us, underwritten by a Pravda-like focus on religion. And so the over-elaboration of the terrorism concept in recent years in terrorology, or its hollowing out in security studies, are but related ways of escaping its primary political driver, namely the stealth rationalization of terrorism. Throughout the past decades, and specifically as regard Islam, and the Al-Qaeda and ISIS episodes are only amongst others. The silences, ladies and gentlemen, to be specific about my communication here, uh, in the terrorism text, the silences in the text are the text. If the building up of ISIS as an all-purpose, jack-in-the-box, and jack-of-all-trades allows the disappearance of the political question, it is high time to decouple the related histories of ISIS and Al-Qaeda from the securitization narrative they have been captive to. Racism itself sits unquestioned at the heart of that discussion on ISIS, with the violence beam that the European and the American considered exceptionally unacceptable and particularly heinous, elevated to a standalone dangerousness, not because of what it is, obviously terroristic, but because of whom it dares target. Therefore, bringing back colonialism in the terrorism discussion allows for a historicized reconnecting of geopolitics and domestic politics. And I think this is starting. And you have more and more people doing it. Uh, increasingly, there's work coming out, as we will see as such. And such a, an intellectually disobedient rupture, which I explicitly take on, can help establish a richer genealogy of the non-state armed groups that we're observing, correctly themselves projecting themselves beyond state borders and societies. This recodification of violence, ladies and gentlemen, at the hands of the Islamic State, constitutes in and of itself a sea change in the history of political violence. And in that context, I think we need to pursue a so far absent theory of transnational political violence and invite a different type of debate. In conclusion, the violence introduced by this entity in Al-Qaeda is not merely a set of disruptive challenges to the international system that somehow would need to weather it out to be back to a normality that is no longer possible. These systems are now part of what is happening for forcible features. The international system remains, however, a papier-mâché college of old patterns of colonial control projected imperially on a new stucco-like promiscuous encounters at the heart of the postmodern metropolis. The future of ISIS will be Western. The future of ISIS will be more about its flag than the group itself. The imagery is already taking over. Look at the events of the past two years when you hear that an attack took place in Australia or here or there and is claimed by some kid. Is it even really ISIS to begin with? Do we have even evidence to ascertain that that is the case? The Islamic State has therefore raised for us, conveniently as a set of scholars, 
the deeper questions of understanding terrorism contemporaneously. And as a result of that, such a proposed episteme is not about intellectual emancipation. I would like to be clear here. It is about academic inquiry proper and about laying an objective claim on conceptualization, a needed inquiry into terrorism that would seek to decipher its nature, not remain indexical, derivative, and ultimately compromised by the very politics it is meant to study. Theorizing the Islamic State rather than storytelling it or merely documenting its obvious terroristic violence can help us make sense of these larger and most important issues. And I think that is a sign of the times that we need to look for the trajectories that are controllable and these larger uh, issues stand at what we can do in terms of understanding what ISIS is. And I thank you very much for your attention. I think you heard it. If you haven't read the book, you have been invited uh, to read that book. And the messages of the book have been spoken uh, in such, uh, with such eloquence uh, by the author. Thank you very much, uh, Mahmoud. Shiraz, over to you. Yes. Thanks. Well, thank you very much for, for asking me to uh, respond to some of what um, we've just heard. Um, I'm just going to speak for literally two, three minutes. Um, I was actually sent the book uh, quite early on, uh, so I was very fortunate to have read it uh, a few months ago, actually, um, and to come across some of these arguments before you were making them publicly. So thank you again um, for that. One of the things that struck me, actually, is something you touched upon uh, a few times at the start, which is this process of hybridization, the public debate in particular surrounding ISIS and the broader crisis that we've seen uh, in the Levant and in Syria and Iraq in particular, is one um, that has been quite shrill. It has been quite polarized. It has sought to um, impose a number of easy and um, quite lazy at times and caricatured explanations for what has been uh, a very, very complex phenomenon and a very, very complex um, situation that has arisen out of multiple histories, multiple trajectories and stories. And so that's one of the real achievements I felt of the book was that it began to bring together and identify a number of sources of these complexities and then to show the genealogy and the various antecedents of them as they came together to give rise and form and shape, not just to the group that we understand to be ISIS today, but also the way in which it's acted and operated in the manner that we've seen over the last three to four years, but also with a view looking forward to the way that it might be going. So you have these very complex trajectories and histories of a group like Al-Qaeda and what it has been doing and its own campaigns and fights. But more broadly, the unique histories of Syria and Iraq and their own um, histories and experiences of colonialism, of brutal dictators running those countries, of sectarianism and the various dynamics that they've used themselves to perpetuate uh, their rules and the dynamics that are fed in. Uh, there to give rise, as I say again, to these movements and create the conditions in which these types of groups and movements and organizations have flourished. There's a great line you use both in the book and, and uh, today as well. We said ISIS essentially represents this fluidity, and it is that fluidity of these different histories, of these different chaoses and situations arising in uh, the region that have given rise not just to what's happening there, but also this broader flow then. We saw the mobilization of people across the world from France, Britain, across Europe, Africa, the Gulf, and uh, the Far East, all traveling, migrating out there to want to be part 
of this enterprise uh, that ISIS created. Another example, if there more were needed, of the hybridization of what uh, we have seen taking place. And all I want to really end uh, by saying, so that you have ample time for questions really, is that this isn't just a crisis that you see playing out in the context of ISIS or uh, being unique and particular to them, but this more broader rise of our anxieties of globalization, post-colonial uh, environments, where we sit today, and where we are, has given rise, of course, in the West as well, to populist movements here. And so it fits into this broader global insecurity, this global sort of uh, pattern of things that we're seeing take place around the world. And so in that sense as well, I think the book is really unique in that it's bringing this debate into that region, but it is typifying and examining something that is actually playing out across the world writ large. Thank you. Thank you. So, let's have a few minutes. Questions, comments, you have the offer here. Please uh, speak. Thank you. Um, Thank you very much for your really interesting talk, and, uh, and I'll be at that table uh, in a few minutes. Um, uh, I not received uh, an advanced copy. Um, I guess as somebody who works with, with the policy realm a lot, um, on various subjects, I mean, you talked about securitization or securitizing the, the concept of, of ISIS. It, it troubles me that um, the structures of our of our governments uh, in the West, but also in the region where lots of the ISIS violence is visited. And of course, as you know, uh, far, far fewer Westerners have been killed by ISIS than, 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 than residents of the MENA region, uh, of course. But the security agenda and, and safety, whatever you want to call it, is so primary in the, in the activities and funding of our security agencies, that understanding, uh, whilst interesting, is not their priority. Um, and that's not because the individuals wouldn't like to, but because they, they literally have the challenge of not having uh, a bomb go off uh, on one of the bridges of the Thames every day. Um, and I struggle to find fora in the policy community where they have responsibility for that. Britain, we have uh, our Joint Terrorism Analysis Centre, right. which is supposed to understand, no, it's supposed to be the current knowledge of right. intelligence, yeah. but that's still not understanding yeah. Yeah. Of, of it. At the same time, though, the policy, it's a long question, sorry, mm -hmm. okay. the policy realm too often looks for academic theories yep. that fit something yep. that they need, or they want to use to deliver a public policy effect. But there's no good if, if the academic community is so separate from the policy community that no one engages with it or, or frankly, understands. What do you think yeah. we can, or how do you think we can, we can breach that gap? Thank you. Shall I? Please. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Gerson. Allow me maybe for me just before answering the, this very important question, just to um, thank Dr. Maher for his comments. Um, I think that he, he, he highlights, I think, certainly one of the aspects that I really wanted to get across, which is this notion of the hybridity. Um, but also his point about the globalization of this, the environment in which the milieu, the contemporary milieu, is really the, the core message of this discussion. That is, that, that what you're looking at is something that is very much a sign of the times. 
Um, and if I can also uh, also recommend to all of you in all uh, sincerity the excellent work that he's authored recently about Salafi jihadism, um, which is also, I think, working very well in tandem with the, this work. Um, so thank you for that. Um, Professor Gerson, I think you put your finger on, interestingly, we were in this very room, and some of you might be might recall that, last week at the, uh, another event that we had talking about the interface between uh, statecraft and historians, um, precisely to find ways to do what you were describing, which is to bridge that, um, um, that space that needs to be, to be uh, mm, sort of bridged in the sense that you have two different environments working on two different logics, two different pressures, obviously the slowness of academic um, time, in effect, as opposed to the urgency of the policy-making world. But I think there's, 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 a, there's a problem when it comes to what I was describing here in terms of the, the more recent materialization of this, which is the following. The usual simplification that the policymaker needs at all levels, from the analyst to the decision maker, the usual impatience with complexity, the three-page memo with options that needs to be written yesterday, right? All of those things are rather familiar on other set of uh, crises. Uh, and so it's, it simply comes with the terrain. And, and at the other end, of course, um, academics tend to dwell in this cliche ivory tower a little bit too much. So effort have to be made on both sides because the issues are about current affairs. What I think the problem in this particular aspect is that there has been a dominant narrative that has overtaken a very complex set of issues that has all of these dimensions. Some of it is, religi is religious. I, my argument to you is I don't, I don't care about the religion of ISIS, okay? I do not believe uh, that it is that important. But I think that it is an element that has to be mastered and understood and, and sequenced in that discussion properly. And then we go down the list that I, that I mentioned, every one of those, and the social makeup of the lieutenants of Saddam Hussein that now end up controlling Raqqa and, and Mosul. You don't hold cities like that by 20-year-old kids coming from, from Marseille, as I was saying. You have to have all of these elements. So the complexity of that is going to need for a lot of time, understanding, brainstorming, uh, and embracing that. And that's an effort that the policymaker has to do. And there's plenty of identities. The military don't do that very badly, by the way. There's a lot of very good strategic works that have been put out over the years uh, about you know, configurations, about scenario, about planning that works. Where I found the problem, and uh, I said the word, and you kind of alluded to it, so I'll say it again, is the emerging incestuous relationship, where in effect the policymaker goes to a security expert or terrorism expert to actually hear what they are already implementing, and kind of a looking for imprimatur, looking for cachet to have that aspect. And I think in that sense, both are not doing their work. One is not addressing the complexity, uh, uh, for which he's been elected, and on the other one, the analyst is not conveying the complexity of what they're looking at, and the modesty, as I said. We have to look at all of this in a, a lot of modesty, particularly when historically terrorists have always had one step ahead, have always been, by definition. In fact, I make the argument in the book that there's a relationship between modernity, between t violence, terrorism in effect, and technology. And that is something that we haven't looked at enough, that every one of these generations where there's been a technological innovation of a large magnitude has somehow given us a new age of terrorism. And I have three examples that I share with you for what they were as a pattern, okay? We may be not completely right, but the anarchists, all about the dynamite uh, that was introduced in the 1860s, and it gives us the big uh, Dostoevsky wave, right? 
Secondly, you have the 1970s, right? With all of these groups that really wreak havoc throughout Europe. We have a lot of technology about ease of travel, uh, democratization, new technology, Boeing, McDonald, and all of this wave of, um, what is it, uh, hijacking. And of course, Al-Qaeda is the product of globalization. So today, we're looking at a sort of an acceleration of the modernity of our lives and the globalization discontents that we were hearing about are very much in effect for me giving rise to this hybrid entity, ISIS, which is partly in Mosul, but partly also in London, partly in New York, partly in Delhi. And as a result of that, we have to plan at all of these uh, levels, as opposed to saying, fortress Europe, keep these crazies at, at bay. And by the way, aren't all of these guys that look them like them you know, a little bit dangerous? Um, it's very insulting uh, to a lot of uh, people in this region. The racist undertones that are carried today in this discussion in the media, in the policy-making statements, at the White House, and all of that partakes of, a, of a, I think, a negative moment of knowledge production, which is not there, and non-history, as I said, that we need to write. Yes, yes. Thank you. Uh, and thank you for your question. There's a, a lot there. So yes, I think that the modernity that I observe in, um, in uh, ISIS comes precisely from its pursuit, not only of a state building project that is relatively familiar in studies and that's out there, but I think of the very notion of order. You see, modernity, by definition, is about the creation of order, right? Totalitarian ensembles and, and historically throughout the 20th century, as opposed to the disorder of previous uh, eras. And so an entity that is very keen in communicating in those terms, that has videos with its hierarchy in the different domains and all of that, is speaking a language which is unprecedented in terms of not only terrorist groups for sure, the classic ones wanted to be states, right, in the earlier phase, the other ones pushing against the states, a contra logic, or even Al-Qaeda, which was simply preventing, pre presenting its uh, population with a base. Al-Qaeda in Arabic means the base, the base for the jihad. This is what we're doing. These guys are saying we all want to be a dawla, a state, a, a dawla islamiyah too, with a specific ideology. So this is a, sort of something that they want to download. And of course we know that it's, um, it's a vision and it's not going to work, although they pushed it 
pretty far for three years in the second biggest city in Iraq and the fifth or sixth biggest city in Syria, and it took a large coalition to dislodge them, and the story's not finished. So it's not to be neglected in that way, because there's also the narrative, this is finished, move on, which I think is part of the problem. The post-colonial aspect, I really would like to insist on today, because it's not discussed, frankly, honestly. It's not there. Strategic studies, we go into the securitization discussion we're talking about, you look into radicalism, violent extremism, this technocratic language that takes away the basic discussions when, when you go in the global south, that's all there is as a discussion. Why is the violence coming and where is this? So at the best you'd have somebody paying lip service to it. Well, but this is finished. Let's look at what's happening. No, it's not. That's actually what has moved this very violence. And unless, unless this is dealt with, this is not going to be uh, addressed. And that, I'd like to insist on that because precisely the Kuashi brothers of this world who know nothing about what they're looking at religiously, all they're carrying is their own DNA of the product of the Algerian uh, or rather the French uh, uh, colonial experience in France, which when they come back and you know, are born and live their lives under bridges in Paris as Frenchmen, right, this, they're carrying this experience and that's what they want to express when they go to Charlie Hebdo, fundamentally, with the terroristic violence uh, that they're going through. Now, the, um, the question about Al-Qaeda and ISIS is very important, just very quickly on that. There's clearly an important management difference. Um, ben Laden was much more consensual and much more charismatic, and very few people stood against him. And when Zarqawi tried to do that in 2005, he was put back in place, and he was told not to attack the Shia, because bin Laden did not want that, to focus on the enemy, the Westerners, and, and so on. As opposed, and also bin Laden did another thing, which is a little bit unprecedented in terrorist activities, which are always about centrality, my own group. He said, disseminate. Uh, organize these franchises, right? Mm -hmm. And in so doing, he was being very, frankly, Machiavellian, Sun Tzu-like. He was stretching the enemy uh, in that sense, creating a number of mini-centers in Sahel, in Arabian Peninsula, here, there, and one of these entities rose up to become the replacement. But it took a lot of, actually, leadership in that sense from Bin Laden to let the strategic decision-making to the Wahiri, to let the military sort of terroristic operations to a Zarqawi type, to a Druktel type in, uh, in, the, in, the, in the Sahel, or to an um, um, Al-Awlaqi type in uh, Yemen, and so on and so forth. He was decentralizing in that way. And it worked for that phase. And most importantly, he left us not with Al-Qaeda, an entity that you could kind of unpack and defeat in the George W. phrase as such, which misses the picture, but al-qaidism, right? A kind of something much more um, elusive, dilute, that you could unpack and that you can therefore, in time, make your own and adapt without not knowing much about it. With the state building um, Baghdadi local regulated hierarchical project, you go into something that is different. And yes, they enter Mosul as an army of liberation on June 11, 2014 for the local population, but soon enough become an army of occupation as inevitably. And so when people come to rise against them, the population um, teams up. It's two different logics that you see playing out because the project, I think, is related, as I said, but different um, uh, fundamentally. Yes, yes. Um, well, uh, my name's uh, Dan, I'm a filmmaker. I work a lot with Al Jazeera. I think you're very right about seeing this as a political thing. I think it's part of a wider movement to depoliticize things like the riots here in 2011 that they you try to say it's nothing yep. to do with politics. But let's say we, we, we 
take it as a political entity yep. rather than a religious or cultural thing. Uh, I have two questions. One, just a point of fact, really. Yep. Is there a rich scene of either uh, uh, um, self-referential or documented link between earlier forms of political violence, mm -hmm. like anarchism or mm -hmm. the 70s movements? You um, mean on the part of ISIS? Yes. Okay. And Al Qaeda. Yep. I'm just interested yeah, yeah. in yep. if they are knowingly following mm -hmm. a genealogy. Mm -hmm. And then also, let's, if we consider it from the political point of view, how then do we think about the religious aspect? Mm -hmm. Very good. So on the religious aspect, it's, it's, that's the easy part, because most of the literature is emphasizing that. Okay? And I think the nuance in what I'm saying is important. Let me say that again. The these are religious groups. These are Islamist groups, not Islamic. This is their ideology. They're not Marxist-Leninist like Black September or like some of these groups in the past, right? And I'm using some from the Middle East specifically, right? Um, they are anarchists, they're not something else. That's the ideology that they have. However, as an analyst, my question to you, my invitation to you is how much value do you ascribe to that? Specific example, I take AQIM, for instance, Qaeda and Islamic Maghreb. So they stand there, they send these videos, they tell us that they're attacking Paris, or they want to attack Paris more specifically, because of the French policies vis-a-vis -vis their Muslim population, or because of the French presence in Afghanistan, which is the document, and then they send a message about it. I take that and I put it here. I turn around and I see them behaving in a very, you know, about the nexus, so-called, in a very nexus-type logic in which there's criminality, there's gasoline bootlegging, there's hostage-taking, there's um, migrants uh, trafficking, there's drug trafficking. We went there with the Kofi Annan Commission up in Gao. I was there and I was seeing the youth and they told us we never seen drugs until these guys showed up in the name of Islam. And this is a Muslim population, by the way. And I turn around and I see this political economy of terrorism, as I call it, right? And more importantly, I see that they have taken in, according to the New York Times, about 100 million euros in the 72 or so, by my count, hostages they've taken since 2003 and 2013-14. So how do I relate that? Do I look at this particular aspect or do I look at that particular aspect? And which one do I prioritize and on what basis? My point to you is that there is no dissonance. In effect, there's consonance. They are both. The social media of these guys coming from Algiers, most of them, petty hoodlums, post-Algerian crisis of the late 90s, explains that they would be you know, trafficking in that way. And the historical roots of that area make that easy. But I also can believe that some of them believe in what they're saying about their extreme version of Salafism or the extreme version of their radical Islamism as such. So one does not preclude the other. But I, I, I dump all of that into what I see as a political movement in a sequence. Some will be more political than others. The history of terrorism tells us that second and third generation are less political, more violent. Baro Meinhof, etc., you can see that. I would submit to you, Al-Qaeda was eminently political. And this entity is a, is a political phenomenon, but it is not necessarily itself political above and beyond its state-building project. Bin Laden, pardon the details, but they're important here. Bin Laden was speaking about, in his speeches, about the occupation of the Muslim lands, the support to Israel, the support to the Arab dictatorships. Those are three things that you see in all of his speeches, right? Now, by the time you get to Baghdadi, He's talking in a much more violent, much more kind of uh, expansionist, much more mm. imperial kind of logic vis-a-vis -vis the Shia, vis-a-vis -vis the milieu, vis-a-vis -vis the Westerners, whom he only wants to behead. 
He doesn't want to send them a truce like Bin Laden did in 2004, if you recall as such. So that's, I think, it's important. In terms of all the, their references, they tend to skip all of these movements and go to 7th century, 10th century references. This mise-en-scene, as I said, which you see very much about the companions of the prophet, about the early faces. The Westerners are referred to as crusaders, all of this uh, terminology that you know. I only uh, I note one important point, as I said, and it shows the, the not so much the self-limitation of ISIS, but rather the imprint of Bin Laden, who is never really criticized. And Baghdadi, rather as Zarqawi, who's always present as a second uh, reference. The Wahiri is dismissed. There's a very important speech on June 15, 2014, in which they say, Udran, ya, um, ya doctor, in which they basically say, sorry, doctor, Dr. Zawahiri, but we're taking over. In effect, they're conducting a coup. You know, you're not important, this is finished, we're gonna take over, and by the way, with the Islamic State, and by the way, with the Caliphate. It, it's, it's a power move on the part of ISIS as such. So the references there are much more tactical for them. Thank you. Thank you. Let me take two more. Uh, yes, please. Yeah, please feel free to yes, I have a very, a very quick question. Um, it's related to the place of ISIS yeah. in this rivalry between Shiites and, yes. and uh, Sunnis uh, in this region. Now and there, you hear that uh, for instance, some Sunni dictatorship or some Sunni regime, like Qatar or Saudi Arabia, are somewhat tolerating or using ISIS to weaken the Shiites in the region. How true is that? Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, Adam Congo from Niger. Yes. I'm a businessman here. Yes. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Um, uh, first of all, on securitization, you reminded me that I didn't comment on some, uh, something important Mr. Gerson said earlier, which is that securitization is not a Western phenomenon. It's a global phenomenon. And so the regimes of the global south, um, such as CC, such as all of these regimes, are playing this card very well, as you were alluding. And I really wanted to say that because we see that totally playing out in this very kind of uh, tactical way, very smart, very shrewd uh, in that sense. Um, ISIS is both the product of the Sunnah and Shia divide, that has emerged over the past 15 years, and an accelerator of it. It is the product of it, and this is important to realize, sometimes it's forgotten in the West, the Sunnah-Shia divide was never as existential, as deep, as violent as it is these days. It's always been there as the so-called fitna and divide within the different schools, but it was carried um, as, a, as a thing that's present there, you know, in the his larger history of Islam. When Saddam Hussein attacked Iraq in the, uh, Iran in the 1980s, the, the, the war was much more geopolitical, uh, and the support that he got from the Gulf states uh, was very much about their survival physically, and not so much about the Shia element of it. Today, when you see in the videos the, the violence, the hatred, the physicality of it, the, the existential aspect, it has reached new levels. And most unfortunately, colonialism again, this has to do a lot with the <coughs> opening of the Pandora's box in 2003. When Mr. Bremer and all of these sorcerers, apprentice opened the box in Iraq, they wreaked havoc in that country that had this balance, this balance that always worked, even within a, an authoritarian state like Saddam Hussein's, who had a Christian prime minister, a, a, a foreign minister, and a Shiite prime minister all the time. Uh, and that was interesting. But in opening that, you basically sort of opened the, the deep reservoir of hatred which was available. They didn't create it, but they enabled its playing up. Comes now 
So it plays out. The Shia make the mistake, unfortunately, under the prime minister um, at the time in Iraq. Forget his name. Um, somebody helps me here. Prime minister of Iraq, mi uh, middle of the 2000s. Um, anyway, uh, the, manage the Shiite management after 2003 takes over and starts a process, in effect, of dismissing their Sunnah br uh, brethren and brothers. As a result of that, all of this radicalization comes in the 2010s to take a vengeance. That's exactly what Baghdadi comes to do. He brings the most radical elements from prison to unleash a revenge. Uh, and you see that in these videos very much so. So that's for the Sunnah Shia. Now, the Gulf, there's a bit of conspiracy there. The states themselves are being attacked by ISIS. You know, let's keep Saudi Arabia, Qatar, UAE have been attacked. Let's be clear about that. So there isn't a support, as you can sometimes hear, supporting that and so on. Specific individuals might have provided support for sure. You know, they have the ideology, they have the finance, and we have a lot of patterns demonstrating that. Uh, beyond that, you could see some tolerance of the problem, you know, in a, in a, in a kind of enemy of my enemy type of logic that has been managed. Uh, it's a composite picture, but you don't have an explicit program designed to sort of let these guys and support them. It's more about tolerating individual financing, uh, which by 2015, ISIS doesn't even need. You know, they don't need remittances coming from the Gulf, a few thousands, when they have millions coming daily from the territories they occupy uh, as such. But, but, but the link is there. The link is definitely there. Thank you, Mohammed. That was very compelling. Um, I'm, I'm Yusuf Mahmoud. I'm an interloper here at the African Leadership Center. I'd like you to speculate a little bit how to move this theorizing of ISIS into the policy world. Perhaps a theorization that might be <clears throat> conceived as subversive or appeasing into the policy world that is highly secretized, as you, as you have said. Um, what are the chances? And if there are chances, how should we move from what you just shared with us into a little bit um, more nuanced? understanding of the whys we have this new industry of, of violence that is so vital for the relevance and the survival of many regimes mm -hmm. everywhere. I'm sorry, that's, that is the last question. I had one and that's very much related to the kind of question I wanted to ask in the sense that Maybe I, the, the point, I was struck by many points, but the one about which I was most struck is the complexity that you introduced and our own call, our own call, call you know, I don't even want to say that we are, we're not innocent bystanders. Mm -hmm. We are yeah. intricately linked as academics yeah. uh, to this issue. If you had a moment, yeah. In which, in which a policy decision maker said to you, as an academic, we are now ready to deal with the real issue. And that's why I said the, the two, uh, my, my question is linked. We're now ready to not just go to a think tank mm -hmm. 
to try to help us uh, project and underscore the very ideas that we have. We want you as an academic to help us map, uh, chart a path to dealing concretely with this phenomenon. Yeah. What would you advise? I know it's an unfair question. It's no, not it's in not. the book, yeah. It's a but, very uh, important question. Okay. Thank you very Thank much, Kumni. Thank you, uh, Yusuf. Kumni. These are very. This is really what I wanted to land the conversation because mm -hmm. you know once you follow the argument and the history and the, and related to other research and connect that uh, and inform yourself, then precisely as I said to my student, ask the next question. Mm -hmm. So what would, would would we get in pushing that envelope? So Yusuf. Um, besides the, your own work, which I also would like to recognize and, and the research you're involved in, I would say it, the, the question that arises in relation to this for the engagement with the policy making is most of it is not specific to this specific question, as I was saying earlier. Most of it is what you have out there in terms of academia, policy making, interacting. However, this has become a cash cow the whole radicalism, extremism. I've been involved in a lot of these projects. We had sessions in Carnegie recently. We had a lot of events in Geneva. We had a lot of engagement with the think tank world. I've been leading a number of these projects on CVE, PVE, all of these technicalities. And frankly, I am convinced, since some of my students are starting to work on this, that 10, 15, 30 years from now, this whole business will be studied as a project. That in the early 21st century, a whole thing developed which was about these acronyms that we've seen. And that's not to take the nature of the problem, which is terrorism, violence, killing of people, all of that. We know that. This is not about relativizing or even you know, explaining. It's not to justify. This is about getting to the nitty-gritty of why is this happening, as I said. So that problem has become now taking, it's, it's become, as I said, almost, it's huge. It's a business, and it has um, stakes that are high. Now, what I think would be the discussion to be had in this is if you have, and I'm getting, gonna link that to my answer to her, if you're going to have that generous intellectually policy maker, and there's plenty out there, there's plenty out there. Some of them themselves might come from academia or simply have the wits to be willing to listen and engage, then what you have to take them into, and this is now linking it, is the nature that are, of the question that are non-specific to the groups, the places, the here's, the there, the people, the religion, to look at the dynamics. That's what I think we're missing on this. The entrepreneurship of social violence. This is what you see arising. Why would a group like Boko Haram, which has its own history, northern, southern Nigeria, the deeper Sokoto Khalifat in the background, all of these dynamics of the most recent you know, dynamics in Nigeria, Iran, why would it all of a sudden claim to be a wilaya, a region, of an entity that is in the Levant of which it knows next to nothing about, frankly, right? Because uh, what's his name? I forgot his name, the leader of Boko Haram. Shekhao. Shekhao, Shekhao, frankly, is very cartoonish in the manner in which he borrows that, that uh, imagery from uh, the Levant. Well, it does that because my point earlier about McDonaldization, because it's a brand, because it sells, it scares, right? And as a result of that, what we have to look is these aspects as opposed to say, we need to get into the mind of these guys, and soon enough we're talking about a whole community, right? And therefore, we are being racist. Let's use, let's call a spade a spade, as opposed to trying to get to specific, delineable questions that have historical antecedents and explanations and understanding. So that's one. Now, 
there is a deeper issue in, uh, which I'd like to link in what you said. One of, us, one of them is about us as academics. There is a key work which you might have come across, some of you might have read it, Robert Vital's latest book, which looks at the genealogy of international, American international relations, and finds that at the birth of that tradition, you had a lot of studies about race, about development that continued throughout the 20th century and gave us the schools that we are familiar with, realism and so on and so forth. And that debate has not been opened. The Vitalis brought a book, right? You know, uh, White World Order, Black uh, Power Politics, The Birth of U.S. Um, uh, relationship. I think international relations, I think, is, is a discussion that we need to link to the technical discussion of terrorism. And I think when we do that, we get to giving a certain legitimacy to the discussion of the politics of it, as somebody earlier asked about the political dimension, because you couch it in larger terms. Mm -hmm. If they were to ask me, as they've done, they've done, I at once attended a meeting with uh, the British, uh, French-British Council, I think somebody from related to that is here maybe, in which the French and the British minister asked my advice about these things, and my answer was to highlight the importance of interventionism. This is the other big elephant in the room we haven't mentioned. The staccato repetition and manifestation of interventionism for the past 25 years. From Somalia to uh, Iraq, to Iraq too, to Ivory Coast, to Libya, to all of these elements. Now, if you are constantly visiting violence that produces no positive result, right, without it stopping and interrogating what is that question, then I think one of the things that you're missing on is that you need to be able to give a chance to these societies to link their development to the central question that I named, <coughs> which seems to me the fundamental one, which is, which is state building. Mm -hmm. So let's revisit this incessant interventionism, right, one. Secondly, link it to the questions of state building that are developed domestically. Mm -hmm. And I'm not casting the stone here to the Western states, because I start back home. Because we can't have it both ways. No. I'm talking now as an African, as, as no. an Arab. You cannot ex claim that you have the interventions create the problem no. and not look domestically and see that it starts with the states that cannot be constantly on life support. Because that's what basically intervention Absolutely. does. And it raises the question of leadership that no. we heard earlier. Absolutely. Let me, I know that there are students from different departments here. Two things have happened today. This thing that we see African Leadership Center students staying nicely within the School of Global Affairs, doing their own work, uh, stops a little bit, not because you don't come in here to the War Studies Department, you do in drips and drabs, but it has afforded me an opportunity, this uh, book launch has afforded me an opportunity to connect you more intimately to the kinds of work that are linked to yours, done in the Department of War Studies or in the School of Security Studies uh, in general. The scholars that you see in this room, from Professor John Gersin to Dr. Shiraz Meha, are people that you have engaged their work. There are more people here in this place. And I think the sort of case studies that you're hearing uh, in passing remarks are things you need to be also imposing your own intellectual capacity on and interacting more. So I, I, I think that's one thing that has happened as a result of your book launch. The second thing is that of intersectionality, which is not just a gender studies thing alone, but the intersections of the subject of leadership, 
security and development with regions, uh, different regions in Africa, talking about a continent, and the Middle East are things that this book begins to help us question in more fundamental ways with outside-the-box thinking and in ways that we can begin to connect all of that theorization, theorizing, new building new theories to policy decision-making and to our own practice as scholars and academics. And I cannot begin to thank you enough that you took time to come back here this week to launch this book here. And I know you have received invitations from different parts of the world to launch the book. Not only do I commit that this will be part of my reading uh, and part of my reading list, I want to be able to bring you back to re-engage us intimately uh, on these issues. Thank you so much. Please join me in thanking listening to Public Debate on the ALC Pan-African Radio. For this and other programs, please visit our website at alcpanafricanradio.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Radio ALC and on Facebook at African Leadership Center. You're listening to the ALC Africa Radio.